That's right, Shane. Just another day at the office, right? This is a very uh, normal passage of Scripture, so um, I know all of you would have uh, basic commentary you'd like to give. I started to ask Shane if he just wanted to keep going and just preach on on through. Uh, because, yeah, a normal human being, you know, you read the story and you go, what? What is happening with the demons and the pigs and the, uh, the graveyard and all the stuff? It's, it's a wild story. It is a wild story. It kind of reminds us that, you know, if anything else you can say about Jesus, you can't say that he was scared of the hard stuff. You can't say that he ran away from a fight, right? You can't say that he didn't go into the places that other people said, hey, you shouldn't go here. Uh, Jesus went into the dark places, and that is affirmed very much in this wild story. This is actually Jesus' first excursion into non-Jewish territory in the Gospel of Mark. This is the first time that he kind of ventures out of the normal Jewish kind of territory, and this is what he finds. And he runs into something very similar. So when he has his first public ministry with Jewish people in chapter 1 of Mark, he has the same thing happen. He encounters an evil spirit, and Jesus immediately confronts that evil spirit in chapter 1, and he shows a decisive victory over evil and over the powers of the devil. And he does that with the Jewish folk. Now he goes into the non-Jewish area and he does the same thing. He confronts the presence of evil and he overthrows it finally in all the places that we would be afraid. This story also follows immediately after the story that Amberly preached on a few weeks ago. The calming of the storm, right? The calming of the waves and where Jesus demonstrates that he even has authority over the entire cosmos, that everything that is disordered in the outside world, everything that is disordered around us, that Christ has authority over that, that he walks on the water, symbolizing that he walks over all of the scary stuff, that he is over all of the things that we fear that are just below the surface of the water, that he is Lord even of those things. This story... Jesus doesn't triumph over the, the, under, the, the external things, but instead he shows that he has authority over all of the disorder that is within humanity. So not just the things that are out here, but all the things that are in here. Jesus has authority over those things. This area that Shane told us about in the reading on the east side of the Sea of Galilee uh, all of the reports of this area are that it's a bit eerie, even in the daytime, that it's a bit rough. It, it's a land that was filled with caves. And in those days, it was very common to just have random bodies just buried in those caves. And so, yeah, they were, they were afraid. It was a scary area. I mean, we all grow up with a little bit of graveyard superstition anyways, right? A little bit of demon superstition. I mean, how many times have you heard all the silly things? Go Google Graveyard superstition sometimes, it's, it's a lot of fun. Uh, but all the things you're not supposed to do in and around dead bodies and all the things you're not supposed to do in and around uh, funeral services or, you know, don't, don't get around graves, you have to hold your breath, and all that crazy stuff. So you can imagine the kind of folklore that they had back then. So this is a double whammy for the Jewish audience because not only is Jesus going to an area where there are dead bodies, which is unclean for Jewish folks. You know, you have to go through purification if you're around a dead body. Not only is Jesus around dead bodies, but there are pigs 
<laughs> and if you're a Jewish person, that's a no-no. That's an unclean thing. So why would the Son of God, the leader of our worship, the leader of our, you know, this new movement of God, why would he be going in the midst of dead people and surrounded by pigs? What is going on? As soon as Jesus steps out of the boat, he comes over to this new area and immediately, Mark says, he uses this word immediately to uh, denote the urgency of the issue at hand and also the urgency at which Jesus confronts the issue. And the issue is not just one issue, but it's many issues. We see very vividly in the description of what meets Jesus when he gets out of the boat. There's with him in the tombs, coming out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. And he lived among the tombs. He wasn't just visiting there. He didn't follow Jesus over there. He lived there. He was camping out permanently in this area among the tombs. It's a graphic sight. It's one of the most vivid descriptions of disorder that you will see in Scripture. <clears throat> just like in Mark 4, where Jesus is out with his disciples on a boat and there's a violent squall and there's a storm, we have within this man a violent squall that is all over him. And it manifests outside of him, all around him, and it changes everything that he does and who he is. The unclean spirit in this man's life has worked its way into the driver's seat. His personality is no longer the personality that he had before he lived among the tombs, but now the unclean spirit's in the driver's seat. And he does all kinds of crazy things that you and I wouldn't think of doing or that he didn't think of doing before he was being controlled by this unclean spirit. Everything that is central to this man is now being dictated by evil. His life has changed so dramatically that 24-7 he is constantly being tormented by evil. And one of the casualties of that is that he is also tormented by loneliness. Think about how alienated this guy is. He's out here being tormented by the unclean spirit. And, and people have tried to reach out to him. They've tried to come close. But as the reading of the text showed, everything they tried, nothing worked. Even the chains that they would wrap around this guy to try to restrain him, he broke. He lives among the dead. So you can picture this man. I mean, you can just picture and you can just feel as the text is being read, you can feel the loss of hope and the utter despair that this man must experience. The level of self-hatred that it takes to cut yourself with stones. Mark also tells us that he doesn't have any clothes on, which is a symbol of shame. It's a loss of dignity. And Mark points out that uh, technology, all of society's efforts to restrain evil within this guy have not been effective. He was often bound with shackles and chains. It's the same word. Remember the parable from a few weeks back where Jesus tells about uh, if you want to plunder the goods that belong to a strong man, you first go in, you bind the strong man, then you can go steal his stuff back, right? You bind up the strong man, then you can take what he's been hiding away from you. Well, in this story, no one is able to bind the evil that's in this guy. No one can do it. They've tried, and binding doesn't work. Who has the power to 
bind this kind of evil? Who has the power to, I mean, is there any hope at all? You know, they had to wonder. And certainly this guy had to wonder. You imagine that he had all but given up. And as wild as this scene is, and as crazy as this scene is, and as much as at the onset we read this text and we go, man, I've never seen anything like this before. Have we not seen this before? Though, I mean, picture people today. Picture me. Picture you. Picture friends of ours. People in our community who have lived with this level of alienation and loneliness. Picture people in certain families, in certain community structures that have lived with this level of despair, that in whom this kind of loss of hope was a real thing. It's not that far from what we know, right? We see people like this every day. Whether we notice them or not, we and they are there. What did this man need the most? What do... Those folks today need the most. The question uh, begins to be answered by Jesus. The great thing about Jesus, I say that like there's only one great thing about Jesus. One of the great things about Jesus is that in the midst of our despair, in the midst of our loss of hope, in the midst of this man's just violent acting out and cutting himself, Jesus is already speaking words in his presence and in the presence of evil. Before this guy ever says anything, Jesus is already talking. Right? He gets out of the boat, he sees the evil, and he begins to open his mouth and speak. And what does he say? Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Right? Enough. That's enough of this. Enough loss of hope. Enough alienation. Come out of this man. And Jesus asks the unclean spirit, hey, what's your name? And the unclean spirit replies, uh, Legion? Because we are many. The Legion was kind of code for uh, the, an army of about 6,000, kind of the, a regiment of about 6,000 men. So he's saying, I don't, I don't even know what my name is. I just know we're a lot and we're strong. And here we are. This unclean spirit begins to beg Jesus not to send us out of the country, right? We, we're at home tormenting this man. Don't send us away. And it's ironic that this unclean spirit is asking Jesus for liberation from the very thing that he's already doing to the man. And he's like, we've been tormenting this guy, but don't you torment us. And Jesus doesn't oblige the uh, not getting rid of. But he does make a concession. And, and the, the unclean spirit says, well, you know, how about those pigs over there? And Jesus says, all right, I'll give you permission to go to the pigs. Yeah, and I remember the first time I read this, I'm like, the picture of 2,000 pigs jumping off, a, running off a cliff and drowning in the sea. I mean, say again, say what you want about Christianity, but we're not boring, okay? <laughs> it's not boring. It's not magic. It's not magic. It's the law of light. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in that way, it's the law of the kingdom of God. It's the way of Christ. Legions. Pigs. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine the economic impact of 2,000 pigs dying. You know, today, 
But especially then, you know the text I thought of as I was kind of griping about that and preparing the sermon? I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like why, in, in an agricultural climate, why would we ever accept this as a, like, like why'd you have to kill the pigs? What'd the pigs do? I think in a way Jesus is saying, your life is worth more to me than many sparrows. Remember that? He says that in other places, and maybe, maybe that sounds a little nicer than your life is worth more to me than many pigs. We should put that on more Hallmark cards, you know. Your life is worth more to Jesus than many pigs. But, you know, we love pigs, though. But anyhow, do we see this level of evil and unclean spirits today, spirit possession? Absolutely. Should we be afraid of what we see? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Remember your baptismal vows. Some of you in this room were baptized not all that long ago, and you went through and answered these questions. And some of you, maybe it's been a while, maybe you didn't go through this exact format, but for the entire history of Christian baptism, there has been something along the lines of a casting out of evil. And so our vows, our particular vows, we ask the baptismal candidate, on behalf of the whole church, I ask you, do you renounce Satan and all the spiritual forces of wickedness that rebel against God? And we say, sometimes naively, you bet, I do. Do you renounce the evil powers of this world which corrupt and destroy the creatures of God? We do. Do you accept the freedom and power that God gives you to resist evil, to resist injustice, and to resist oppression in whatever forms they present themselves? We do. Do you repent of your sin? And renounce all sinful desires that draw you away from the love of God, that alienate you from God's love. And we say, yes, we do. Do you confess Jesus Christ as your Savior, put your whole trust in His grace, and promise to follow and serve Him as your Lord in union with His holy church? Finally, we say, I do. It's a strong, strong covenant that we make when we begin following Jesus. And it's always included our acknowledgement of our ability to resist evil. Not because I have superpowers or because you have superpowers, but because of the God who lives within us. Because if Christ is within us and Christ in him, there is nothing dark whatsoever. No matter the darkness that we encounter, the light of Christ that shines in and through us is every day and always greater. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. It doesn't get better than that. Anytime we have a conversation about evil and unclean spirits, it's a reminder that because of original sin, because of the fall of humanity, there is a certain level of influence that Satan has over all of us. When we begin our lives, right, we're all susceptible to original sin. We, so it's within all of us. And so in all of us, the image of God, which we were created perfectly, is marred to an extent. It's not marred beyond repair, but it's marred to an extent. Which is why part of the redemption that's enacted in Jesus Christ is the restoration of the image of God in you and in me. That when God's prevenient grace, right, the grace that goes before, when it begins to draw us to Him, when it begins to bring us back to God from all the places that we've wandered, when original sin and the power of original sin is overthrown and we have the ability to speak favorably of Jesus, we have the ability to 
hear his call and say yes to his invitation to follow him as Lord and Savior, that's what's happening. The image of God is being restored in us. That which was broken and torn apart is being put back together. All the way through the process of being made right in God's eyes and then the grace, the sanctifying grace that makes us more and more like Jesus, the image of God is being restored in you and in me. That's what we celebrate. So this text kind of has part A and part B, and we're finished with part A. And at the end of part A, I have to say that last week I walked in the graveyard in Fluvanna, Texas. This week, I'll walk in a graveyard in Clovis, New Mexico. And as I stood there with dirt in my hand and looking at a casket, someone who was breathing just a few days before, it just welled up in me. You have to remind them that this is not just children's talk or pipe dreams. It's in the words of St. Paul, if Christ is not raised from the dead, and we are to be pitied above all people. If Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, then we are wasting our time. But thanks be to God, we have this hope that is kindled within us. Not only is the darkness overthrown ultimately and finally and in the future, but it works its way back into our day-to-day -day lives. We don't have to be afraid of the darkness. It completely transforms our presence in a graveyard. It completely flips what we expect to find. So much so that I think Mark is partly setting us up for chapter 16, for the last chapter, when Jesus is raised from the dead. And what is the setting? A graveyard. A tomb. Early in the morning, the women go to the graveyard, and what do they find? Life has overthrown death, and the light has overthrown the darkness. That's the foundation of our faith. That's the beginning and end of who we are as God's people. I am the light of the world. So part B of the text is just kind of the, the good fallout of this, right? The, the, what, what is happening because of this wild event. So now that it's kind of a news headline, back then even it, it would be for us, what happens? I mean, there weren't video cameras, so people couldn't sit at home and watch it on the news. So they came out to see what was going on. They're like, are you kidding me? That sounds crazy. I think I'll go check it out. You know, you can just imagine the rednecks and lawn chairs and all the things that are happening. Like, let's go see what's going on. We heard about the crazy guy. Now we heard something happen and there were pigs. Let's go check it out. People begin to show up and they notice, Mark tells us in three participles, three things that are happening. First of all, this man is sitting. He's sitting, which is an image of what? Of rest and of uh, restoration. You know, he's sitting there at peace, reminding us of kind of a kind of a creation picture, a Sabbath, a gift. Also, the man who was previously naked has clothes. He's fully clothed. He's been restored with his dignity. He's uh, his shame is covered. He's been made right with. God and at peace with his surroundings. He's sitting there with clothes on. And then my favorite one, he's in his right mind. Right? He's, he's back to himself. He's not the crazy guy anymore. 
he's back to who he was the last time we saw him before he lived in the graveyard 24-7. He's been made new. And so in the midst of what seems like would be an overwhelming, you know, you'd think this would be the point where everybody just sets up camp and says, hallelujah, this is great. But the people are seized with fear. They don't respond favorably. And they're so afraid they ask Jesus to leave. They're like, hey, we were okay when the crazy guy was over here with the crazy stuff and Jesus wasn't here to bring the worlds together. All right? Leave us alone. Get out of here. And Jesus obliges their request. He begins to leave. It's, it's almost like rather than conform like the waves and like the man and like the unclean spirit to Jesus' command, these people run away in fear. They ask Jesus to leave, and so he obliges, and he begins to leave. And he's interrupted by the man who has uh, been freed from demons, though, who has a very different reaction. And Jesus getting into the boat, this man uh, who we were previously shown as the crazy guy, he begs Jesus that he might go with him. And, and as you're reading this story, you're thinking, Oh, this is great. Jesus just got another disciple. He's going to get back in the boat and he's going to go with him. And they just added one to their number. And we're going to read about him being falling in line. And he's going to do something great in the next town. But Jesus did not permit him to get in the boat and go along. Instead, he speaks to him a commission. He says, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to proclaim in the ten cities how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. He just he just wants to go with Jesus, you know, and we've already seen that the people don't want Jesus around, so it's like this guy's the only one that wants Jesus around, that wants anything to do with Jesus. And instead of Jesus doing what I would have done, which would have been like, Heck yeah, good riddance. Why don't you get in the boat with me and we'll leave these people to their fear and unbelief. We'll go on. We've already given them a chance. And they left. They asked us to leave, so let's go. But instead, Jesus kind of turns the tables and he says, you know what? Why don't you go home to your friends? You go back to your house, to your people. And you tell them how God showed mercy on you. You tell them what God has done in your life. And let's see what happens. I never really thought about how this guy in his estrangement and his alienation and his loneliness, you know, he hasn't seen his people. He hasn't been around his people. I mean, I, I can't imagine that he was coming home for Christmas or coming home for the Jewish festivals in the state that he was in. But what has he missed out on? How long has he been out there? How much, how long has this alienation been going on? And so Jesus is offering him the possibility of restored relationships of healing throughout his life. Isn't that a beautiful imitation? Never thought about that before, like a reconnection with his people, which he would have been missing all these years. This is a commandment to go and be the church. And really, this is the first Christian missionary to the Gentiles. I mean, Paul does it later. Uh, but this guy, he takes the message of Jesus to the Gentiles first. This is the only time in Mark's gospel where Jesus heals somebody and then 
tells him to go talk about it. Every other time he says, now, don't say anything about this. All right, let's keep it on the DL. I've still got work to do. This guy, though, he turns loose. He says, yeah, go tell him the whole story. Go tell him the mercy that Christ has shown to you. Jesus, in chapter 7, returns to this area and is received very warmly. So we have to expect that the, uh, the missionary was affected, that his work was affected, that the power of the Holy Spirit in and through Jesus and in and through this man was affected. It's a reminder that the kingdom of God is at work in this story in a dark, demon-possessed area. And everybody wants Jesus to leave except this one guy. It's a reminder, I think, that very often Jesus chooses for kingdom work people that we would never pick, <laughs> people that we would never choose or never see, including ourselves, right? How many times have we looked at what we do and things we do in the church and who we are and go, man, I would have never. If you'd have told me I was doing that 20 years ago, I would have said, no way. No way. I reflected on that a lot this week as I've been preparing for my granddad's funeral because he was just so upset that I went into ministry. I mean, it was like it was it was like my inheritance. I just wasted, just squandered my inheritance. He's like, but you were the the oldest son. I mean, you were supposed to carry on the ranching legacy, and and here you are going off with the oh my gosh. He's like, what a what a demotion and and hope, <laughs> you know. But uh, I've wrestled with that so much and these years, and, and I'd say all the time, I'm like, I was the least likely grandchild out of the 15 of us to become a preacher, and that's the honest truth. But God is doing this work in the midst of darkness, and it's very natural to feel inadequate. So, you know, some of us in the room, I figure when we're wrapping this up, we we feel, maybe we associate a little more with the guy. We, we're feeling a little alienation. We're feeling some disorder in our lives, and we're looking for this healing presence. We're looking for Christ to sit with us, to meet with us, and give us some rest and some peace. And if that's you, go for it. Invite Jesus into those places. And receive him when he comes in the presence of others. For others of us, we're still kind of wondering, yeah, I don't know that I really have a story to tell. I mean, I'm kind of, I don't know. I don't really know what my gifts are, really say. I mean, that's work for others. It's natural to feel inadequate. It's natural just to want to jump in the boat and say, hey, let's go see what's next. And you all know how much I value education and how much I value uh, degrees and serious and in-depth study and how much I value formation and the years it takes to grow in faith and in Christ. But nothing, nothing, nothing is ever a replacement for transformation. All the degrees in the world, all the books in the world, all the time spent pastoring or teaching Sunday school in the world will never have the impact of a transformed life. Hopefully those things go hand in hand and side by side and increase transformation. But without that transformation, without the ability to call attention to mercy and what it's done in our lives, we're not effective witnesses. So in order to resist evil in the world, the good news is you don't have to learn incantations and fancy algebra equations on how to ward off the devil. Thanks be to God. But we do it all the time. We pray the Lord's Prayer, right? Deliver us from evil. 
Every day we pray that. Deliver us from evil. So we're in the business of resisting evil day in and day out. The good news is a transformed life will result in the resisting the devil every time. See what mercy God has shown us, what healing God has worked in our lives. That's our witness, and that's our defense. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.